Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, what will it cost to extend the eligibility for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit for another eight weeks? We know at its height when we had 8 million people on the CERB, it was averaging about $17 billion per month. As my colleague has said, the number of people on the CERB is going down. Another extension to the closure of Canada's border with the United States, despite pressure from businesses and border communities. Even as we are reopening our economy, we see that trade, trade in goods, including trade in goods in the medical supply chain, continues to happen unimpeded and has done so from the beginning. And the Parliamentary Black Caucus calls on all levels of government to take action to reduce systemic racism. I've said many times we are committed to moving forward uh, on a huge range of measures. We're working with the communities, we're working with uh, leaders like members of the uh, Parliamentary Black Caucus uh, to identify what exactly we need to move forward first in priority on. It's Wednesday, June 17th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald, Dan Legere. Dan, thank you for being with us. Hi, Mark. So the Canada Emergency Response Benefit is being extended for another eight weeks. I think there are, I don't think anybody's particularly surprised about that, but there are a couple of questions that arise from it. How much is it going to cost? What's that going to do to federal finances? And also, is there a risk that it starts to create some dependency and that there are going to be some people, as business leaders have warned, that are going to prefer to be taking the CERB and staying at home rather than going back to work as economies reopen across the country? You know, these are ongoing issues uh, when you're dealing with a situation as grave as that is what is going on in Canada uh, you know, with the with the pandemic, I mean, t- to your first point, I think it's clear that the government's finances are in a shambles um, at the moment anyway. And, and until uh, the economy and the workforce start to get back to something resembling normalcy, um, uh, you know, but the the question is still open. I mean, how much is it going to cost? And uh, I don't think we're going to understand that maybe for quite a long time to come. Um, you know, there's, and you know, every time there is a government program of, of any sort, Mark, there are people who are going to say with greater or lesser degrees of justification that uh, these types of programs can establish dependency or uh, otherwise distort the situation out there in the employment market. So I think all of these things are going on now, and it's going to take quite a while before the dust settles from uh, from this situation. And it's not like there's uh, another option that someone else is presenting here that will support Canadians through this really unprecedented time. I, I'm not sure there's anybody saying, hey, we've... We, we've got some other plan that's that's going to make sure Canadians are okay and have the resources they need, right? Yeah, I I mean, I think there's, you know, sort of tacit agreement even among the opposition parties uh, that, you know, a major significant program uh, is required, always with, with uh, debates in Parliament and among politicians and parliamentarians. It's how it's done and how it's accounted for. And, I mean, there is going to come a time when there's going to be a a reckoning, for lack of a better term, and uh, the Liberal government is going to have to explain and account for where that money has gone, and Canadians uh, will 
at some point, uh, you know, in the future, have a chance to uh, to assess that and, and to cast votes accordingly. All right, let's turn to the border between Canada and the United States, which is going to remain closed. The deadline, uh, the the closure date has been extended once again. And there was pressure from some businesses to say, let's let's move towards reopening. It is having an impact, obviously, on getting goods and services across the border. Uh, what do you think about that decision? Well, you know the uh, the pandemic is still going strong in the United States. It's uh, there are a number of states which have, uh, you know, I don't think coincidentally, are the ones who are opening early. And in those states, not all of them, but in in some of them, a significant number of them, uh, COVID nineteen is increasing again and surging again among the population. I don't think anybody in Canada is really keen to uh, to open the country to that type of risk. So, uh, you know, this is a matter of balancing risks, I guess, Mark. You know, the, the government has to balance the risk of, uh, of the economic uh, handcuffs that the border closure has imposed uh, against the risk to the public of the COVID-19 spreading north from the U.S. back into Canada and, and starting up a whole other wave of infections here. So, uh you know, it's it's the devil of a question. It really is. But uh, this is the type of, of uh, reckoning or the type of uh, a calculation that the government has to make. Yeah, no question. And and uh, when you see some of the numbers in the United States in jurisdictions where the economy has been reopened and where social distancing measures clearly are no longer in place based on the, the videos we're seeing from some of these jurisdictions, it does raise questions about the risk of of infection being brought to Canada. And it also raises questions, frankly, about the risk that could develop here if we if we do take further steps to reopen the economy in some parts of this country. Yeah, there's no reason to think that reopening would be any less risky here than it is in the United States. And, uh, you know, our economies and our sort of uh, ways of living are so similar that you're virtually guaranteeing the same risk factors uh, in both places. But I think a major difference, Mark, between us and the Americans is that the, you know, the approach to the COVID pandemic has become an intensely political issue in the United States. I mean, wearing a mask in public is almost like saying I'm a Democrat or uh, and not wearing them defiantly enough is like I'm pro-Trump and I'm pro-Republican. We, we're not having that type of really bad distraction in, in our public discourse over this. Uh, I don't think we are. And most people in Canada are saying, well, look, we have to get through this. Let's let's work together to do that as best we can. And it's not uh, you're not wearing your politics on your face uh, the way people seem to be in the U.S., Let's talk about another story that is playing out on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border, and that's the issue of systemic racism here in Canada. The Parliamentary Black Caucus issued a call for all levels of government to take action on that. How do you see this discussion that's happening turning into action? What steps can be taken to, to address systemic racism in this country? Well, you know, the, the federal government can do um, what it's empowered to do, but it, it, it can't cover the whole waterfront of issues that arise from from racism and, and systemic racism. It can set a good example, uh, you know, by conducting its affairs uh, in ways that are, uh, uh, you know, that encourage 
uh, equal and fair treatment for all Canadians. But these, this has to filter down to the provinces. This has to get into the municipalities and cities. After all, in, in most Canadian cities, it's municipal police who are confronting these issues every day. Um, and so, uh, you know, this, this, I, I have this feeling, it feels a bit different this time, Mark. We've had problems like this in the past in Canada that generally get sort of ignored or covered up or swept under the rug uh, until the next blow up. But uh, it feels different this time. And again, a lot of it is the influence of the U.S. Uh, but we have our own issues of racism here. We have our own issues of police brutality. And all of those have to be taken into account um, and, and dealt with in a much more serious way than they have been in the past. Yeah, and we'll see if it is different this time, if this leads to meaningful action. Let's turn to the conservative leadership race. There is a French debate tonight at 7 o'clock Eastern time on CPAC and an English debate tomorrow night at 7 o'clock Eastern time on CPAC. This is, uh, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. They will be in the same room, socially distant. Um, what do you expect from this? And for tonight, how important is it for each of the leadership candidates to demonstrate a proficiency in French? Well, it's vitally important, um, you know, and, and the questions really center mostly around the two leading candidates or who appear to be the leading candidates, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, who have some French some ability in French and, um, you know, uh, have been working on it, I, I'm sure, day and night uh, over the past little while. It's not like they can go out campaigning and traveling around the country. So they have had time on their hands to work on this. Uh, you know, of course, I, you know, uh, people have had, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole have had decades to work on this. And, uh, you know, I find it amazing that people still claim to, uh, have the mantle of leadership in Canada without really giving that much thought to proficiency in both languages. Um, these people have been parliament, uh, parliamentarians, MPs and whatnot, and they have access to the best French language uh, uh, teaching and, and learning um, in the country. So, you know, this has got to happen. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to be a painful debate to watch, um, you know, even in translation. Uh, because half the time the translators aren't sure what the person is saying so they can translate it. But um, it's going to mark quite a, uh, a stark uh, difference between, say, uh, the French ability and Trudeau and, and the ability of any of the conservative candidates, which is on the line tonight. All right. We'll see what happens over the next couple of nights. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great day. Take care. That's Dan Legere, author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald. I think it's really important that we all come forward and look at bold ideas that we can take on uh, very soon to uh, fix the systemic discrimination that continues to exist in our country. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Ottawa Citizen, Randall Denley argues white Canadians need to wake up and realize our society is systemically racist. Denley writes, We might be proud of the multicultural society we've built, but it's not working so well for black people. We're hampered by a view of Canada as a country that welcomes all, and by our weird inability to speak frankly about race. The big challenge is accepting the notion that the society we created is systemically racist. That doesn't mean all white people are racists, but we need to be aware of structural unfairness, even if it's inadvertent. 
In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues, we can't afford to let fear of COVID-19 drive people from public transit. The Star writes, the halting of life and work as we know it has decimated public transit ridership in cities across Canada. Now, as more people go out again, this decline in ridership will be much more than just a budget crisis. Cities will face a traffic congestion and environmental disaster if even a fraction of those former riders jump into cars instead. In the Globe and Mail, Robin Urbach argues, clawing back pandemic pay for grocery workers is a grotesque, predictable outcome. Urbach writes, Grocery stores operate on relatively thin margins, where wages constitute the largest proportion of operating expenses. Now that cities are starting to reopen, resumed restaurant operations threaten to cut into the revenue and profit surges these stores have enjoyed over the past few months. That's a good reason for a profit-minded company to scrap a bonus pay program. It has absolutely nothing to do with employees suddenly being safer at work. At globalnews.ca, Rick Zamperin asks if the Prime Minister should open the door to a potential NHL hub city in Canada. Zamperin writes... Justin Trudeau says the federal government is open to the NHL operating a hub city in Canada, as long as local public health authorities allow it. But the league has already said that it will not select a Canadian city if players have to adhere to the mandatory 14-day quarantine for people entering the country. If the Prime Minister offers an exemption to NHL players living outside our borders, it would open a can of worms that he would rather keep shut tight. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Conservative Party is holding its two leadership debates tonight and tomorrow. Both broadcast on CPAC. Martin Stringer has more on what to watch for. Mark, the two debates will be webcast starting tonight from Toronto and broadcast on CPAC. Both are slated to start at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and last almost two hours. Tonight's debate will be in French and tomorrow night in English. The four candidates taking part are Peter McKay, the former Harper cabinet minister and the former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole, former Harper cabinet minister and a sitting Tory MP for Durham, Ontario, Leslin Lewis is a Toronto lawyer and Conservative candidate in the last election, and Derek Sloan is the newly elected Conservative MP for the Eastern Ontario riding of Hastings, Lennox and Addington. Tonight's French language debate will be a challenge for all four candidates who are busily working on their fluency in French. But it will also be an essential one for making their pitch to Quebec members of the party. The party's constitution gives every riding in the country equal weight, so that means that Quebec ridings will account for almost a third of the votes for leader. So far, polling suggests Peter McKay is a purported front-runner being challenged by Aaron O'Toole. Leslin Lewis and Derek Sloan are further back in terms of support, and both claim support among the party's religious base. One of the dynamics to watch tonight in the debate will be the extent to which the two top contenders court support from the Sloan's and Lewis's supporters on a second ballot, as the Tory leadership vote will be by preferential ballot. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will hold a news conference to speak about the coronavirus before attending a sitting of the Special Committee on the Pandemic. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet will hold news conferences in Ottawa. And Green Party parliamentary leader Elizabeth May will speak about the party's demands for a full inquiry of the RCMP. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, June 17th. Tune into CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.